You're listening to the NAGRA Podcasters Network. Has Indian Act ever affected you personally, Sean? Uh, personally, yeah. My uh, brother, his both of his children are considered non-status Indians, whereas my kids are considered full status. Um, so when talking about status Indians, they have 6'1", 6'2", and I believe 6'3". Those are the classifications, and my both my kid, children are considered six one status Indians, whereas him are non status. So I totally feel like I should open a spreadsheet and start working out some calculations, <laughs> right? <laughs> on who's indigenous enough? Exactly. To, Indian enough? It's Indian, Indian status, enough, right? Right. Yeah. So again, like we were saying earlier, if my kids go into Walmart, they get to use those status cards, whereas my nephew goes into Walmart. Nephews go into the Walmart. They don't. They have no treaty rights. Well, that is the most important thing is to have a status card to be able to go into Walmart and, right? and claim no taxes, especially on the cheapest item possible to annoy the piss out of the most people in right? line. Yep. 99 cent candy? <laughs> exactly. Not paying dollar twelve. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> in the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty Territory, Nagrin's Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues from a First Nations perspective. From pipeline politics to poverty to pan-Indianism and more, Sean shares his concrete curve leg take, and Carl gives an urban Oneida angle. You are listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Great. So, in case you didn't know, today on One Dish, One Mic, we're talking about the Indian Act. I thought we were talking about my family. We could talk about your family. Let's talk about Sean's family. So, it all started way, <laughs> way back, back when. when there was a, didn't it have something to do with a thunderbird in the sky? And Wasn't there a thunderbird involved? There's or, always a thunderbird involved. And a tur- there's a turtle island in, in the Anishinaabe creation story, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, oh, there we go. See, we're on the same page there. So, <laughs> that's good. That's good. We have a, we have a turtle island, too. So the Indian Act, like every country has an Indian Act, right? Yeah, only the good ones. Yeah, right? Only like the good countries. Germany, Germany had a sort of Indian Act. Yeah. Right? They, they tried that out for a little yeah. while, right? There Australia. Was this, there was this guy, Adolf, that he yeah. tried something that was exactly like the Indian Act, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I think yeah, he, so. Yeah. Let's divide people up, and some people of one race go here. Yeah. And people of another race go there. Yeah. And Canada did that, right? Yeah, that's literally what they still do. It worked out for everybody, I right? Mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> no, too much? Too yeah. much? Too early? Like, right. like, do I make a joke? Am I going to offend thousands of people? I mean, we've already offended thousands of people. Okay. That's why One Dish, One Mic exists, for the sole purpose of offending thousands of people. So, uh, yeah. So, Germany, South America, apartheid. Oh, really? Okay. Apartheid was based off of... South uh, Africa? Yeah. Okay. That's what I said. Did I say Did South you? America? Maybe. I just came back from Mexico. <laughs> okay, fair I enough. I might have South America on the mind. Yeah. But South Africa, yeah. Apartheid yeah. was based off of uh, the residential school policy in the Indian Act. Yeah. Um, what else? Australia, they had to have something. Yeah, probably. Probably. The you, I guess when you think of uh, countries that would have legislation around indigenous people, just think of all of the countries that didn't sign up for the United Nations <laughs> Declaration on the so rights Canada, of indigenous people. Yeah, Canada, Canada. <laughs> the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, yeah. you know, probably had some kind of special legislation. But, but I think actually the Indian Act is special because I believe that it's the only current race-based legislation that's that's out there right now right so where where did the indian act come from how far back would you want to go for well, like the actual the actual inception. act was passed was 1876 what was the name of that act again sean so it started with the royal proclamation of 1763 and then the 
went into the Gradual Civilization Act of 1857. Oh, that doesn't sound too bad, right? right? The Gradual Civilization, Civilization right. Act? That sounds all right. Yeah, they just finished uh, Stopping Savages Act, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's probably what they renamed it yeah, to, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. That sounds much better. <laughs> and then the obvious Constitution Act, so the proclamation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's tough for me because I like the Royal Proclamation historically. Like I right. like what it did yeah. from because it finally acknowledged Indigenous rights. Yeah, and that's where I sort of land on on the Indian Act too. Like I'm I'm not in that camp of tear up the Indian Act. Tomorrow, Wait, well, that's what right? was, that's what I was going to say. Like, are you pro Indian Act? Are you anti Indian Act? I mean, to be honest, there is some uses. Yeah. Yeah, there are. Well, I guess I guess we should look at, at how Canada wanted to use it a little bit more, though, right? Okay. So, yeah, it, it evolved from the Royal Proclamation, and then it evolved into the Stop Being Savages. Act. <laughs> Hashtag Stop Being Savages. <laughs> Maybe that's what we'll call the episode. Stop yeah. Stop Being Savages <laughs> Act. <laughs> so, yeah, but, I mean, it, it was definitely, it's definitely served Canada's interests more than it's served the interests of Indigenous right. people. Right, And, to, I mean, to be blunt, you know, and, and maybe I'm, I'm practicing presentism a little bit, but to be, to be perfectly blunt, uh, it, it served Canada's interests. Like, Canada wouldn't have been able to settle the West right. if it wasn't for the Gradual Civilizations Act. Right. Uh, and then it really wouldn't have been able to establish the farmsteads and all the communities and, and everything else if, if it wasn't for right. uh, the Indian Act. Right. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. So it served Canada's best interests, uh, and it. I mean, and that's really the only interest it served for like the first hundred years. Like it wasn't until a second major amendment in the 1950s where they started to realize that hey, this is kind of racist. Yeah. But then they went from racist to being sexist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from a historical timeline point of view. Well, that's a whole. I mean, that's a whole other side of it. Is is that? I mean, it, it started off, and I mean, that, that's why I don't. I don't ever think it was well intentioned. I think it was. I think it was opportunistic. I think it was a product of, of Western expansionism, right? This, and it's still yep. to this day, Western society right. has has this tightly held belief that if you're not expanding, that you're not stable as a society, right? right. Like, the, there's not this aim for for homeostasis. Yep. They want to forever be growing, or else there's this like insecurity that, like, oh yep. my God, if we don't have doing a, it right. we don't have a growth model. We're, we're in so much trouble. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's sort of the kind of thinking. And of course that thinking was more pervasive back then. So they had to have an Indian act because they're like, Oh, we have these people that already yeah. live here in this, you know, empty land. Well, I mean, that kind so, of, sp- oh, we need to manage them somehow. That kind of speaks to like the, the racist views they had. Cause the whole concept of the Indian act was to enfranchise. Yeah. Right. So if they're, if their constant state of mind is expansionism, but when it came to first nations, people it was assimilation and, and enfranchisement. Those are complete opposite thoughts. Yeah. They, they were doing what they could legally to to ensure that there was no Indians. Well, and I think that's that's maybe where they they stumbled a lot, uh, and still still to this day stumble. Like they're still uh, out there, right? There's the end race based law right. people that just just believe that that indigenous people should just be like regular everyday Canadians, right? But I think I think the biggest stumbling block was probably the white paper, right? Yeah, most definitely. What uh, what happened there for viewers that have been listening? Nineteen sixty nine listeners, subscribers, viewers, viewers. Yeah, I don't know. Hey, people are watching us. To you, fantastic people out there. (laughs) In nineteen sixty nine, what do we call you people? (laughs) Oh wait, no, that's another. That's another thing. What do you mean, you people? (laughs) Oh my god. 
People um, are throwing their iPods out the window. Right <laughs> That's racism. I knew it. Reverse racism. I knew those guys were racist. So, so ni- what was the white paper? <laughs> so in 1969, um, the Minister of Indian Affairs at the time happened to be... Uh, oh, fuck, what the hell's his name? Jean Chrétien. <laughs> Thank you, Jean Chrétien. And the Prime Minister at the time being uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau came up with the concept of a white paper. And this white paper was pretty much in line with Pierre Elliott Trudeau's concept of a just society, meaning that everybody was equal on all grounds. Um, and that's what they proposed. They proposed essentially removing all status, removing the concept of, of the Indian Act, and making everybody just Canadian. Yeah, we, we've talked about that when, in our, unfortunately, two episodes that we've wasted on, <laughs> on Lynn Bayak. I yeah. think the white paper has come yeah. up both times because it's it's a tightly held belief. That, yeah. that I mean, it was um, called the white paper for Christ's sake. I know, right? <laughs> like, come on. It it interconnects with the notion, uh, to be frank, of, of white supremacy or of the yeah. very least of, of Canadian supremacy. Yeah. The the idea that Canadian comes from, from a Eurocentric culture and that, that those Eurocentric values are superior and so by just eliminating indigenous people and by eliminating any semblance of, of indigenous rights, then, yeah. then you will improve society by bringing everybody in line. Yeah. And I think, I think that's still the pervasive thinking to this day. Like it, it really, uh, again, and back in the day, like things were different. I get it that people were super racist in 1650, right? Like when yeah. Champlain came over that hill in 1609 and shot those Mohawk chiefs, yeah. like things were way different back then. Right. Open, open racism was in your face. You yeah. know, European women were being like brought over in chattels. Like it, you know, like yeah. it, you know, the things were different, not, not better, but things were different, but it still has seeded a lot of the racist thought today. Still that notion that Canadian values are the most supreme values and the best values and period end of, end of discussion. So by still, by still having an Indian act and by still having this historical mechanism that's, that's reinforced through, through all these years of, of again, gradual civilization or, or unsavaging, right. It, it still continues to keep that kind of thinking moving forward. Right. (laughs) <laughs> so where are you today now though so we i mean we could acknowledge we could probably talk more about some of the specifics like the uh you've talked in past episodes about how having more than there's only two of us in the room so we'd be okay today right? yeah exactly if this we is... had like darcy or or megan or or mitch or whatever yeah we'd be breaking the law because we'd be a gang a gang of indians <laughs> a war party <laughs> a war party gathering da, da, da. to take trevor's spoils <laughs> right or something so at least it's coffee <laughs> <laughs> right maybe so but it laid a lot of foundation for a lot of other stuff too like i'm not sure um i know that ceremonies were were banned for right. example um potlatches yeah. dance dancing yeah, and actually, there's a specific. There's actually economic reasons for for banning potlatch and for banning some of the um, like like we have ceremonies where we give up all of our worldly possessions, like we set them yep. to the side, and we risk losing them forever. Understanding that that material goods in this world will only get you so far, right. and that's sort of the. And again, I I want to be careful here because I don't have any specific expertise to the potlatch, yeah. but I did go out west, and and from my understanding, the big problem was that in order to participate in a ceremony like that, you just didn't believe in materialism. Right. You believe that you could take everything you have and, and you could put it on it a away. table. Everybody could take everything they had. They put it on yeah. a table. You could sort of split it up towards everyone. Yeah. You could walk away with different or potentially less stuff mm-hmm. and still be okay. Yep. 
imagine doing that today. Exactly. <laughs> I, I went to a potlatch a couple of years ago, and like that does not fly with with Western society. Yeah, like the whole concept of like it even caught me off guard. Like you're gonna give me what? Yeah. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> did I win a lottery? <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I think that there would be a competitive nature. Like people would you know maybe take it like a casino. You know, like well I put you know I put one bean on the table, so I better walk out of here with two. Or yeah. else I've lost again. Yeah. That that notion of Western expansionism. Yeah. So, but it, I mean, it was a different a different philosophy. The idea that you could give up your material goods in this world and it wouldn't, you know, it would actually make your life better. The idea that if you give away more stuff, that's actually, that's, that's how I understand that it was measured. The people that, that contributed the most to the potlatch and the people that walked away with less were the people that were most valued. And again, that's, that's exactly the opposite of capitalism. Literally the opposite of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, totally. If you took it and flipped it, that's what you'd have. And I think, I think that's why it was banned. It was, it was a dangerous idea to have a group of people walking around saying that, yeah, we don't, we don't value material goods. We just want to be happy. Yeah. It goes against everything that Western society is teaching and taught, right? You're supposed to go to work. You're supposed to work your ass off. You're supposed to make money. And with that money, you're supposed to spend that money on things that mean the absolute world to you. Yeah. Um, And that wasn't the case for us. Well, even even for Western society, that that's actually new because my understanding is that England used to have a commons, right? Yeah. There, there was once upon a time when when England kept their forests and other areas as as sort of commons, and then philosophically, the king realized that that they couldn't maintain control, so they invented property yeah. and ownership, and they realized that these were tools that they could use to to control their own citizens. So. Yeah. Again, they're like that, and that's something too that that property rights and uh, property belief that property is important is again another widely held Western belief that just it just doesn't fly in our society. Yeah, in our society, it makes no sense. You've you've seen it even to this day. You'll see, you know, you'll see a child go up to a dancer that they admire. Maybe they'll admire a piece of their regalia, yep. and within the matter of a second, you'll see that dancer take it off their regalia and, and, and give, it, give to it to the younger person to encourage them to dance. Yep. Because it's more important to, to maintain and perpetuate the culture than it is to, you know, have nice, shiny things. So to hold on to these uh, self-perceived valuable items, right? Yeah. Um, shout out to J.R. Shawana. No, not Shawana. Jonathan. I'm, <laughs> so, I'm so sorry, J.R. J.R. Shawana. But, but the roach that my son uses was exactly that. It was a gift from him, right? And we're looking at a, a relatively expensive item when it comes to Western society. But J.R. did what he did and ensured that my son had that roach. Yeah. And... My son is forever grateful and will always remember that. Yeah. Right? So. No, I didn't know he did that. JR is an awesome guy. Just yeah. throwing that out there. So. Sorry, JR Shawanathan. <laughs> <laughs> JR Jonathan <laughs> or Shawanathan <laughs> is, is a really good guy. So, but I mean, a lot of people that, that have started to take up the teachings have started to understand how, how important these values are. Right. And this is how, again, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent that it was a utopia before Western society came or anything like that. Like we had wars, we had strife, we had conflict, we had, we had in some cases famine and hunger. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, there were some cases where, where there were problems, but, but there's definitely a different philosophy. There was no sense of land ownership. Right. There's definitely a community collectivist approach. And there's very little doubt in my mind that legislatively the Indian Act was, was designed to get people away from that type of thinking so that they could be more easily controlled. Right. To become citizens and civilized, right? Yeah, that was the, that was a concept. 
Yeah, so they ban the potlatch, they yeah. ban the powwow, they ban congregating. Mm-hmm. They uh, eventually the one that the one that pisses me off. Six Six Nations is divided right now on this issue, uh, but because they're the yeah the ban council yeah. versus the the traditional government. Hereditary even chiefs. even yesterday, I opened the Toronto Star and and they're calling the hereditary chiefs a group of you know unelected hereditary chiefs. You know, yeah. as if as if being in place for ten thousand years means means nothing. Right. right. But the Indian Act went in and it created the. Groundwork that allowed yeah. the prime minister to, to issue a royal order because again we have to do everything with with some sort of <laughs> royal stamp of approval in, right. in Canadian ways. So the prime minister at the time went in with a royal order and at gunpoint dissolved the traditional bank council yeah. and implemented a municipal style form yep. form of governance. So that was Six Nations in in 1924, 1925. They did the same thing in Oneida yep. in 1935, but they did the, the same thing all across all across, all across. Turtle Island. Yep. Wherever wherever there was a traditional form of government, they used the Indian Act to reinforce the type of legislation that would that would disassemble traditional leadership. So again, you had the way that leadership used to be was that uh, I, I know for our people specifically how it worked but my understanding is that generally you would have somebody the reason why we would use hereditary systems isn't because we thought that bloodlines were superior but because if you treated your leadership as family then you were more likely to be fair Mm -hmm. with someone so if you and I are brothers and one of us has to step forward, if you if you step forward to represent the two of us and, and we're brothers, I have that extra confidence that yeah. you're going to take care of our interests. As opposed to putting a bunch of people in the middle of a circle and, you know, a bunch of them standing up in front of a room and debating one another right. and, you know, putting your the, one of their names on a secret piece of paper and, and putting that forward. Like it's it's a flaw. I would say that electoral politics still to this day is a very flawed form of democracy, whereas in having a, a representative participatory government the way that it used to be for indigenous people actually worked pretty good because you really cared about the outcomes when you're dealing with family and when you're dealing with people that you've that you've grown up with right like if i think if you were to put our electoral system or sorry your electoral system the hereditary chiefs electoral system against something like the queen of england you can't they're not the same no you cannot sit here and say that that the same outcome is going to going to be do you know what I mean? Does that yeah, make sense? and that's and that's what's implied. I guess yeah. is that I see it with people uh, hear the, the, the term know, the National Post or whatever. They see hereditary yeah. chiefs, and they they automatically assume that it's nepotism at its finest. Yeah, when it's not at all. There is a, a very strict procedure in place when it comes to electing chiefs. Can I add something here? Yeah, of course. Of course, Trevor. as as the white guy in the room. <laughs> yes, the... we've been waiting. <laughs> we knew it was coming, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> the, so the one thing that. That struck me as odd about this conversation, particularly around the, um, the the dissolution of hereditary chiefs, is that if it came from royal decree or royal <laughs> order, that that is I know that, where you're going. Like that, say, that, say no more. That's a system based on hereditary <laughs> governance, <laughs> and and they said that. Hereditary governance <laughs> right. is should not be a thing. Uh, you're my favorite white person. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 that motion. <laughs> I, I now understand the gravity of the situation, right? And um, yeah, I'm I'm just gonna. I never even honestly, I never even looked at it like that. No, never, that's, that's not clever. even thought yeah, of it like, really from that from that I'm point ju- of view. <laughs> I'm just gonna go into a corner and, and, and feel some shame for a little oh, while. Um, I'll I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> Love you, Trevor. <laughs>
But like even even like above and beyond them outlying our ceremonies and and our traditional values, they made it the laws of the Indian Act made it virtually impossible for us to maintain status. So anytime we did anything in a professional nature or became a uh, a professional such as a doctor or a lawyer, we lost our status. Anytime there was any sort of interaction with Canadians and Canadian values, it essentially ensured enfranchisement. And this happened until 1961. Yeah, I remember uh, uh, my grandmother's uh, husband. Damn. Okay, I'll have to edit some of this out too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, enfranchisement. That, that's it. My, my dad, for example, he, yeah. served, he served in the Vietnam War. Okay. And he did it willingly. He did it because he believed that there was a threat to, yeah. to our homelands. In World War One. the traditional Haudenosaunee Confederacy declared war on Germany. Yeah. In World War Two, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy declared war in Germany, yeah. which, which is what allowed the troops to, which is what allowed First Nations troops to, to go over and, and yeah. to help fight in, in both of those wars. So my dad similarly lived, lived in Buffalo at the time and he saw a threat. And so he went and he enlisted thinking that, thinking that he would help. Right. Yep. That was the logic was that there's a problem and I want to help. This is, you know, let's set our indigenous and American issues to the side yep. and we're just going to go and work together on this, this greater common problem that, that we have had, had he have done that 20 years earlier though, yep. he, he would have been, he would have been enfranchised. Yep. He would have willingly had to give up his citizenship as, yep. as an indigenous person and, and declared us citizenship. Yeah. And declared us citizenship. So it it's it is the people were punished for and yeah doctors lawyers right teachers voting yeah voting any kind of any kind of participation in Canadian society meant that that you were completely alienated from from your own society yep. and that that was the trick too because then then you couldn't live on the reserve either. right so like let's let's put some context into it like imagine that you are. An 18-year-old man who just happened to finish his last semester at good old residential schools. <laughs> and, and you're kind of wondering what you want to do with your life, right? So you, you've been taken from your, your community. You've been taken from your culture. You've been put in a foreign environment, right? So you're 18 years old. What most 18-year-old people were doing at that time was contemplating university. Um, but what we were doing is, is contemplating whether or not it was okay for us to go back home. Mm-hmm. Right, because there's that there's that feeling of disconnection. There's that feeling of I don't belong. There's that feeling of of just lost. Yeah. Right. So so you're 18 years old. You finish residential schools. You make the decision to go to college. You make the decision to go to university. Like what then? Like you've essentially completely removed yourself from everything that you've known in your life. Yeah. You, you've completely severed all ties with that, and that's the issue that Indigenous people have with education at this time. Like I know we, I know a couple people gave me slack over our education episode, but they weren't fully understanding the grasp of it. Like choosing education meant that you're choosing citizenship, meant that you're choosing a new way of life, and meant that you're choosing essentially a new family. Can can you imagine just having to say, mom, dad, auntie, uncle? Just start fresh, like eighteen years old. That's what we're talking about. Sixteen year old, and I'm I'm being generous at eighteen because most people left at like sixteen. But yeah, no, that's. I mean, that's heavy that that you can either make that choice 
to, to try and improve your life, but risk turning your back on your own people forever. Right. And, and the fact that you have decades and decades and decades of law that, that reinforce that too. Yep. So it's not just that you leave the reservation and you've got an education and that you're shunned by your mm-hmm. people. It's also that the legislative framework that existed for the majority of, of Canadian history set those things in motion. Yep. So you have left your reservation to try and improve your life. You've now made that choice that you're leaving your indigeneity behind you yep. completely. That's completely gone. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just... That's heartbreaking. Right? Yeah. And that, I mean, that was law. That, and that still is the spirit of, of the law. Yeah, exactly. It's still, still to this day, has some sort of power. Yeah. Right? There's still, there's still those, because you, you call somebody a dog and you treat them like a dog, eventually going to act like a dog. So even if, even if you remove those titles and the way you treat people, people still have that tendency, that muscle memory to, to think like, hey, I'm a dog. Yeah. Right. So even though the policies may have changed in the 1960s where we were given the right to vote and they may have changed in the 19 in the 1980s where women were re-given back their status. Um, there's still that us versus them mentality. People on reserve still have this concept of of you're a traitor. Right. And we yeah. still have these concepts of education being a, a negative thing. Yeah. Right. Even though like in today's society in the last 20 I'm 31. So in the last 30 years, those policies are no longer in place. We yeah. still we still have those feelings. Yeah, and that I mean that that's where it gets tough for me uh, I, and you actually. We're, yeah. I mean we're both urban indigenous through and through, yeah. right? And I think we're we're second, third generation urban indigenous people, right? Yeah, like my, I'm, I'm third. My grandma was from the reserve. Yeah. I, I consider myself closer to Buffalo and, and Fort Erie than I do to Oneida. Exactly. You know, like, yeah. and, that, and that doesn't make me any less Oneida, and I don't mean it in that sense. But just, if I'm being perfectly honest, that's, that's where I've spent the majority of my life. Yeah. That's, that's where, where I've grown up, right? So, but when, when you think about how it would have been back in, back in the day, first off, it would have been harder to come to an urban setting because there wouldn't have been those supports. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is, I, I feel terribly guilty about the fact that I think it's in, it's in Canada's best interests if we all move to the cities yeah like there's more opportunity here but then also a lot of first nations territory that exists next to diamonds and exists next to oil and exists next to pot potash or you know like whatever the whatever the commodity of the day is that western society is trying to use to get richer because they're not rich enough yeah the fact that sometimes the only thing that stands between that environmental exploitation and progress is is that there's reserves out there yeah so sometimes i actually feel guilty about living in the urban indigenous right? setting like you, because it plays into the assimilation agenda of of canada to, yeah let's get them out of there and let's get them into the cities so i'm always torn because it's like well do i continue to work hard on things like one dish one mic that that show that this is our territory too right or do i need to you know get get back to oneida and fight the good fight so that there's less hydro lines and less draining of the Thames and less exploitation of the land. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a terribly tough position to be in. Well, it's a constant struggle for the majority of our people. Yeah. And it, and it leads to, again, further alienation amongst us. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's so, I mean, even, even to this day, the, the divisive nature of things like enfranchisement and, and gradual civilization are, yeah. are still, are still being, uh, perpetuated by by the Indian Act, and we didn't even talk about the sexism of the Indian Act, yeah. like the double mother rule. Right? Yeah, exactly. Do you, uh, uh, your nephew? You said my nephew. 
your nephew doesn't have status, status because he wasn't able to check the right number of ticky boxes. So regardless of the fact that your family is indigenous through and through yeah. and by all standards, including our the standard we set on One Dish, One Mike, by the way, for, for people that want to go all the way back and listen to the episode with Joe Shawana about, about indigenous <clears throat> identity. The, the standard that we set wasn't about blood quantums. It wasn't about cards. It wasn't about mm-hmm. legislation. It was about contributing to the greater community. Yeah. That's what we believe the standard for indigeneity yeah. is. It's having a community. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, it's it's having the community. It's participating in the community. It's giving to that community when when you can. You know, yeah, taking from that community when you need to. That I mean, that that's basically the mm-hmm. standard. Dish but that's one spoon. Exactly. So, but that's not the standard for for your nephew. Right. Things not like the all. double mother rule. The double mother rule for for listeners that that don't know are that your mother had to be indigenous and your mother's mother had to be indigenous, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter if everybody else in your family was indigenous. If those if those two family members weren't indigenous, you didn't pass the so-called double mother rule, right. then then you lost your status. Now, 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 keep that definition in mind. Now let's add into the fact that if your mother married a non-native, so your father was non-native, non-status, your yeah. mom automatically lost status. Yeah. Right? So you have to have your mother and your grandmother... But if your mom, if your dad is not native, that you're automatically done. Yeah. No status whatsoever. Yeah. Completely gone, completely removed. Um, all of our rights down the drain. Yep. And again, this has nothing to do with blood quantum either. Like people say that it's blood quantum, but it's not. No. It has nothing. Like there's, I don't know. No, and that, I, I mean, that, that's, it's frustrating. It, well, and it is. And, and, the the trick is though i mean that that begs the next question because now anybody who who's been listening for the last 20 minutes is going to go well why don't why don't we just tear up the indian act right. if this is such a racist piece of colonial legislation why don't we just tear the whole indian act up so are where where are you on that kind of thinking the indian act in my opinion needs to be blown up into a million pieces and split into two departments redefined and split into two departments <laughs> carolyn bennett can take care of the one part and jane philpott can take care of the other it's brilliant i like it this justin chudu guy finally he's more than a nice uh, set of hair finally made up for his father's white paper finally he's fixing everything uh, yes I don't even know what to say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it needs to it needs to be blown up. It needs to be um, redefined. It needs to include our our treaties that we've negotiated. It needs to include our rights that are negotiated. Um, it needs to give more control back to to the people. We're the only nation or nations that don't have control over who our citizens are. Canada controls that. Can you imagine Great Britain saying, you know what, you can't be Canadian? Yeah. Can you imagine the Queen of England or even the United States of America saying that? Yeah. Right? Because that's what it's like for us. My brother, my nephew, is not considered Indian. He's not considered a member of my community. Is not Technically couldn't go live on a reserve because he's non-native. He's non-status. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you can't. You can't. Uh, in a lot of cases, you can't even live on a reservation yep. if you're if you're not indigenous. You definitely can't own land if you're not indigenous. Right. And again, it's some. Sometimes there are band council members and members of the reserves that have set those rules. But again, for the most case, that's based on legislation. That's that's the law that yep. was written that way. Yeah. White people can't live on reservations. Right. Which is again, it, it creates this this tricky situation. So. So basically what you're saying though is is you're you're against the Indian Act. Uh but there can't be nothing. Right. There and that I think that's where this gets a little tricky because a lot of people just say, Well, just get rid of the Indian Act then. Let's just yeah. completely write it out of legislation. And then we can pretend like indigenous rights never existed. Exactly. And there were no agreements. The Royal Proclamation wasn't wasn't a necessary like there actually I did say this maybe twenty minutes ago that I'm a fan of the Royal Proclamation. Me too. The reason why I'm a fan of the Royal Proclamation is because if you look at history, Western society was up against the brick wall, and that brick wall was was united indigenous nations. So the only way that they could actually establish communities, villages, and and farms was by acknowledging the fact that indigenous people have have rights. It's the only way things would have would have went forward at, mm-hmm. in in 1763, at, right after the French and Indian War, and before the American Revolution. Western society was was really teetering on the brink of stability at that time. And right. Were it not for the Royal Proclamation and a real shift, a real paradigm shift in, in how they approach indigenous people, that these people are our partners, these people have some existing rights to the land, and we need to find a way to work with them. Were it not for that shift, I, I don't think that there would be a Canada or, or an America. I don't actually think that Canada was, was founded in 1867. I think that Canada was, was founded in 1764, 1764 when the Treaty of Niagara was yeah. signed just, just down the street at the council house from, from where we are now. Mm-hmm. Because that's when you had basically the United Anishinaabe nations. You you had the the Eastern Confederacy, or the most of the Haudenosaunee nations, most of the other nations that were involved, and and you had all of the European governments that had reached consensus at that point in time. So, I, and the reason that they were able to reach consensus, and what I would like to see an Indian Act look like moving forward, is that they used the covenant of friendship. Yep. It was it was just that simple. They they originally figured out that they could they could be at peace then they learned how to respect each other and then all of a sudden they built they built a friendship out of it and yep. and that was that was how they were able to form that peace of the Treaty of Niagara. That's how they should have established the framework for Canadian and indigenous relationships and that's what has to happen moving forward because anything else isn't isn't gonna work whether you like it or not. Right. Kicking and screaming. So that's my traveling thought for the day. <laughs> Boom! Mic drop. <laughs> what about you? Do you have any oh, final thoughts? Final on thoughts on the Indian Act. On the Indian the Indianist Act. of all Indian Acts. <laughs> the Indianist of all Indian Acts. <laughs> For me, the Indian Act is is the sole legislation. That is responsible for all of the hardships and all of the loss of culture and identity and language and and the the raping of our culture and the raping of our people and the alienation of our people and and without understanding its influence, you are not going to understand the current Canadian indigenous system that's in place you're not going to understand the animosity you're not going to understand the unfair advantages that canadians were given over indigenous people um so just learn about it like if if anything google it 
like Carl posted this fantastic uh, website giving just a maybe what it was a five minute read giving a good synopsis of everything that happened. And it, it, this wasn't even everything. This is just like the tip of the iceberg. But understand it, learn it, read it, and help us move forward in the right way. Um, again, being that it's Canada's 150th anniversary, um, <laughs> we we need to do better, and Canadian citizens need to do better, and Indigenous people need to do better. We need to understand the history. We need to understand the legislation that was uh, used to affect us, and uh, we need to create change. Preach, brother. Preach. I know. I'm feeling very preachy today. Preach. Do it. No, that's right <laughs> on, man. Educate yourself. Listen to every single episode of One Dish, One Mic, and you will learn about history. Listen listen to other Indigenous podcasters, too, I guess. Yeah. So Ryan McMahon's got a, actually a whole network of, of yeah. podcasts that you can listen to. Yeah. Uh, there is also Rick Harp, Media Indigena. Yep. Listen to them every single week. Like there, There's all kinds of great information that's out there. And and also, listen to the rest of the Niagara Podcasters Network because they, they are very supportive of, of indigenous causes including giving us a, a platform to allow one dish one mic to happen pop up podcast studio right here in the so on that note <laughs> before before we wrap up um i wanted to uh, did you guys see in the paper that uh dj Shub uh got an award yep yeah yeah we should call that out because he does the he does the show intro right yeah oh so, yeah that's yeah. right yeah that's that's a whole buy like go out to uh dj shove's website yeah and buy buy a cd right get some it's, music yeah. yeah yeah get some music right that's that's a good yeah. you know that's a good fort Erian. like that's a niagara right there dj shove is from niagara i mean yeah. Six Nations, but he lives in Fort Erie. Oh, he's a Fort Erie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> His family's from Six Nations. Yeah. He's but... a uh, Juno award-winning artist. He's yeah. traveled the world. He's a Canadian national DJ champion um, two times over. He's represented Canada at the world DJ competition. Like, this guy has some serious credentials behind him. Nice. Serious credentials. Yeah. So He's a real deal. If you could, maybe we should reach out to him. Yeah, I haven't, should, I haven't talked to him, him on the show. We'll get him in. So yeah, next episode. Stay tuned. <laughs> we didn't we didn't gush about you just to try and get you on the show, but if you're out there listening, yeah. Dan. General. Oh no, I'm gonna you're getting tagged in this, Dan. <laughs> he's gonna have to listen to this whole show to realize that why why he's tagged in it. <laughs> Hell yeah! All right, you've been listening to One Dish One Mike on the Niagara Podcasters Network right here at Cork, Niagara, home of Niagara's independent workforce. Love you guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to One Dish, One Mike on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Your hosts are Carl Dockstader and Sean Vanderplus. Recording is done at the Pop-Up Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara, home of Niagara's independent workforce. Executive producer is Trevor Twining. Production assistance by Daniel Twining. Show artwork by Mitch Baird. Music by DJ Shub, used with permission. If you have show ideas or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Niagara Podcasts. <laughs>